This is a real-world cryptographer's podcast, where we capture the history of the field via stories. Today on the show, I'm very happy to have uh, Tal Rabind. So Tal is a, a legend in the field. She's known for incredible contributions, uh, including her work on multi-party computation, among many other things. And uh, she's also known for running the cryptography group at IBM Research for a number of years and then uh, our grant foundation. Uh, today, Tal is a professor at UPenn and a consultant at our grant foundation. Uh, Tal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to go back in the history and uh, get a little bit of a sense of how you started working in the field, what motivated you, and what were your first steps? Uh, in Israel, you have to do a master's program before you do a PhD program. It's supposed to be a program with a thesis, a novel thesis, not like the master program here in the U.S. And I think for the uh, only time in the high-tech industry his, uh, history of Israel was there a slump in jobs when I was supposed to be graduating from my undergrad. Mm -hmm. So instead of uh, going out to industry, I decided that I would stay a while longer in school and do a master's program. Mm -hmm. And why cryptography? I don't know 100%. I just looked around and chose more the advisor, really, than choosing the topic. I didn't have such broad knowledge at that point to be able to make a, a better decision than that. And I chose Michael Benoit. Mm -hmm. And he was my uh, advisor, and that defined the area that I worked on. And the first um, problem that he suggested that I work on was um, uh, Ben Or Goldwasser and Vigdersen, what's known as BGW, the Information Theoretic Multiparty Computation Protocol, had just come out. It was um, for um, end parties tolerating at most a third being mm -hmm. faulty. And the question was whether you could go below a third. And in fact, people were split on their opinion of whether it could be done or couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. But Michael was optimistic and he told me to work on it. And uh, that was my master's thesis, uh, multi-party computation for n equals 2 t plus 1 in the information theoretic setting. And just to finish about me, so once I solved that problem, I knew that this is what I wanted to do going forward, that I wanted to continue in research. And then I applied for a PhD program and stayed on and finished that as well. But that was a turning point, really, from initially thinking that I would only do a master's, which was supposed to be two years, mm -hmm. The excitement of solving a new problem and the challenge of trying to think about it and tackle it and slowly break it down um, was very uh, exciting, exhilarating for me and was something that I wanted to do more. And so after you finished PhD, you just wanted to continue working and doing research in the field or um, did you think about going back to industry? No, I, I knew I wanted to stay on. I didn't know in what format and so on. But being from Israel, it was clear that if you ever wanted to return to a university position, 
in Israel, you needed to go and do a, a postdoc abroad. So I applied for that. That was the obvious next step. I sort of worked step by step. And so the next step was to do a postdoc at MIT, and Silvio Michali was my host there for the postdoc. So and how did you um, end up uh, joining IBM? So first of all, um, my husband at the time uh, turned out that he didn't want to go back to Israel. I had always thought that once I would be done with my uh, uh in my postdoc, I would go back to Israel. But it turned out that he, for political reasons, did not want to go back to Israel. So, and said he would go after me wherever I get a job, but it has to not be in Israel. So I uh, applied for jobs here. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very interesting. I somehow really did not have a clear view of how you go about getting a job. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had thought that I would apply for yet another postdoc. I'd been at MIT. I thought of applying to a postdoc for Emma at uh, IBM. And I, I had told Silvio, I had written to him some email to that effect. And uh, he called me up and he said, meet me in an hour at uh, Le Bon Pen. And, uh, and at Harvard Square, where they play chess there, meet me there in an hour. It's urgent, you know, in Silvio Micali true form. And I went to meet him there and he said, what is this thing of applying yet for another postdoc? You need to apply for a job. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, I applied to IBM for a permanent position and not for a postdoc. And I got that. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, uh, IBM research group? Were you the first one there? So it's very interesting. The IBM uh, team, this is in fact its second incarnation. There was a huge crypto team at IBM, which included Hugo Kravchik, Moti Jung, Mehir Belare, eh, Amir Herzberg, and they were there and they were doing uh, research, and Juan Garay, I forgot Juan, and they were doing research in crypto. Mm -hmm. But at some point, instantaneously almost, it would seem from the outside, they all had decided to leave for various reasons, most of them personal, but they all left. Mm -hmm. But before they left, they ended up hiring four people. Rosario Gennaro, Juan Canetti, Shia Levy, and me. And we were all either fresh out of our PhD or after a postdoc of a year or two. And I always said, and they all left, and that was it, and the four of us were left there. We were all junior. And I always said that it felt that... Um, uh, it was as if these little ducklings were left behind by their parent ducks and we were left there to try and uh, pave our own way. But the truth is that what might have seemed originally as something bad that had happened to us, that we were left alone, it really was a huge opportunity. We had arrived in 96 and uh, Shai arrived in 97. I was made manager one year after I joined IBM, and I was the manager there for 22 years. But we, um, together, we really created something quite amazing. 
um, because I think that the important thing was that we really were a group. We worked as a team on many, many things. We were supportive of each other, of each other. The goals of each person were the goal of the others. And as such a thing, it really created an entity that was much more than just the sum of its pieces. We really turned into something um, quite great, I think. And at some point, uh, Ran left, Ran Canetti, mm -hmm. yet again for personal reasons. Oh, I forgot to say the most important thing before Ran left. Before Ran left, one of the original people from the group returned to IBM, which was Hugo. Mm -hmm. And then we were the five of us together. And this was for quite some years. But then Ran left. And when Ran left, we hired Craig. And that was the group almost, almost to the end, when we also hired yet another person, which was Fabrice Ben-Hamouda. So this was sort of, and Rosario left at some point also. So this was sort of the team going forward. And uh, I forgot to mention one more member in the team that had moved into our team from another IBM group, was, which was Chanji Jutla. Mm -hmm. uh, when you guys were hired as uh, individual members, did you know what you had to do for the company? Did they set up objectives for you or did they simply hire you and let you kind of roll on your own and figure out the direction for the team? So we were hired at a very, very difficult time at IBM research in general and IBM research specifically. IBM research had always been funded by what was called base funding, meaning the company had made money and the research institution was sponsored from these funds. And people at, the, at research basically got to do research in the purest form. There was no need to contribute to the company and this was just how it operated. However, but by the way, I'm saying they didn't have to contribute, but of course, if something came about, of course, the company would adopt it and implement it. But many of the people were engaging in pure research. Mm -hmm. However, in the beginning of the 90s, the company started crashing and Lou Gerstner was brought in to be the CEO. And he had changed things for research. He said that research had to be more relevant mm -hmm. to the company, that it would um, need to somewhat bring its own funding, first of all. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was that it really had to engage, possibly through the funding that it was bringing, in the sense that it would go to the divisions, get funding, and give in return mm -hmm. services to the divisions that it paid. Um, but there were other means of getting funds, which were from customers, yet again, an impact for the company, and also from government agencies like IARPA, DARPA, and so on. So at that time, we had come in, this was exactly the time that things were changing. Mm -hmm. And there was a need for uh, groups to bring funding into the organization. But for many years, um, we still did not bring in funding, but we did try to be more relevant for the company. And for example, we participated in the NIST competition for AES. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And this was perceived as doing things for the company mm -hmm. because it was an image thing that IBM was taking part. I mean, IBM designed Des, right? So it was sort of a continuity thing that IBM would be part of the competition that uh, would design the substitute for Des. But even other things, we, we did become more relevant in many ways. And the way that we did it, despite the fact that we did not bring funding, was that we would do um, consultations to the divisions uh, who built all kinds of security product and had a cryptographic core to them. Mm -hmm. And then we would examine that cryptographic core, check its security and so on. And of course, not implementation, things like that, but the things that we as cryptographers could verify, um, we did put in place um, a five-year plan for what cryptographic uh, protocols should be implemented on, on IBM hardware and things like that. So this is how we made ourselves relevant. At the beginning, you're asking, did we know what we needed to do? So the answer to that is not 100%, maybe not even 10%. Mm -hmm. But we started, you know, we, we figured it out as we went along. And we found the things that we were able to do and that were helpful. And on top of that, we also continued to um, publish and to do our research, which was mostly more of a theoretical nature, but mm -hmm. still um, we tried to do it. And this was also important for IBM research because having publications in academic conferences, getting chose to be chairs and things like that were things that IBM research valued. And um, so these were things that we contributed sort of on an image um, level. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that uh, a year after uh, joining, you were promoted to a manager. And uh, did you have a specific uh, goal as a manager? Uh, what did you uh, did you set up any specific objectives? I had no goals whatsoever. I barely knew what it meant to be a manager. Yeah. But uh, eventually, with time, I, d I definitely did not set an agenda. I'm not so well organized or forward thinking. But with time, I realized that what I want, that the goal is that this team will thrive and will be a very important and influential crypto team. It was lucky I had the best materials to work with. I mean, the people in the group were phenomenal by themselves. But in order to sustain this, you had to be able to create within IBM research, the environment to do it. And that was the most challenging thing throughout the times that I was a manager because things at IBM changed drastically from uh, sometimes from month to month, sometimes from year to year. And to be able to sustain an environment that would work, that really could deliver excellence in cryptography um, required a lot of internal workings to maintain this. One of the things that the group uh, is very well known is for attracting a lot of people to, uh, you know, come and join uh, as visitors, postdocs, students over the years. Was it something you wanted to bring in as a manager, or was it the kind of the entire group that wanted to see more of this external collaboration? I think that it, we all wanted it, of course, but it was me who needed to enable it. That's going back to setting the environment within IBM 
there were in many times restrictions on number of students, on postdocs, on money in general. So the question was, how do you navigate um, the terrain in order to make these things happen? But we all benefited from it and enjoyed it. And really, I agree with you that this was something wonderful. Uh, that people would come uh, for the summer and be with us or for a year. Uh, it um, was uh, invigorating, you know, it was a rejuvenation every time. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, uh, the group has produced a lot of interesting results, right, from uh, contributions to the standards to things like fully homomorphic encryption, uh, you know, software obfuscation and so on and so forth. Uh, could you talk about uh, some of these achievements? So I would, I'll talk about three. Mm -hmm. Because there are three thrusts that I would say, um, uh, not cover everything that the group did, but really sort of uh, exemplify the things that uh, we did. So first of all, there's the standard works, which you mentioned, which was mostly driven by Hugo Kravchik. But um, it really he had this idea that we should bring good theory into standards and have our cryptographic standards also have proofs of security. And this was something that he had done throughout the years and many of the standards have um, some Hugo seal on them in the sense, either the designs or ideas and notions and so on. So that is one vein of work. The second vein, I would say, would be the multi-party computations, and more specifically, I would say things like threshold cryptography and proactive security, which were notions that were designed in the 90s. But the interesting thing is that many of them are becoming very, very practical now. Because these, what multi-party computation enables is computations that preserve privacy, that you can compute on secret data. And now with all kinds of uh, regulations like HIPAA or GDPR and so on, many organizations need to comply with privacy of data. And these techniques enable still to get utility from the information while uh, preserving the privacy of the input. So now it, it really has these um, great applications where hopefully, finally, things will move from the theory to the real practice. It's been a process throughout, but... And also, um, threshold crypto, just as an example, is becoming very popular um, with the existence of blockchain technology. There are all kinds of requirements, for example, um, for wallets. You want to keep your wallet, but you don't want to keep your key in a single location. You need to be able um, to generate signatures even in a distributed manner. And this is exactly what threshold crypto deals with. So these things are becoming very relevant despite having been developed maybe um, uh, 20, 25 years ago. So that's uh, the second sort of vein of things. And then of course there are these very celebrated results of fully homomorphic encryption and obfuscations and obfuscation, which are um, break, groundbreaking results. Uh, one was achieved by Craig Gentry in 2009 and the second was by Shai and Craig and others um, later on. I forgot the year at this point. And these results have um, 
were open for many, many years uh, when Craig solved the fully homomorphic encryption problem. That problem had been open for 30 years. So really groundbreaking. And uh, they have created a shift in many things of what we think um, uh, we can actually do and have created many fascinating applications that build on top of them. Once we have these two things, you can design all kinds of magical things that only crypto can do, but these um, two primitives, I don't want to call them primitives, two functionalities sort of really gave a boost to all this magic. So, and the uh, types of topics that the group has worked on, um, how did you decide on those? Was it a selective process that you kind of joined together in meetings and discussed, or was it individuals that wanted to kind of progress in certain directions? I think that um, more of the latter, but I would say the following. For Hugo, first of all, of course, the design of the standards mostly came from what was actually being required in the standard bodies that he was part of, so that, that brought in the things. Mm -hmm. um, and other things, it, it depends, depends how things started. But of course, the minute that you start with one topic of research, then there are, the, you know, tick, 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 more papers follow. So that would sort of be a dynamic. But of course, once we started applying for funding, we needed to write the proposals. And then we would sit and really create a full agenda for the grant proposal that would include many problems around the topic that not we defined, but that the funding agency defined. But within the general topic, we carved out the things that we wanted to do. And these grant proposals were always done um, together. We would think together of exactly how we wanted to formulate them. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, how about today? What types of problems do you find interesting in the field? Um, what types of problems are you excited to work on? So I'm currently excited about uh, the work that I'm actually doing with uh, uh, members in the team, which is uh, uh, somewhat changing the models of, uh, for multi-party computations. Mm -hmm. It is uh, in, and this is something, by the way, that's being driven because in actuality, for example, um, this model maybe is a more realistic model. And what is the model? In our previous assumptions about multi-party computations, we always assumed that the set of parties that compute, in most papers, um, the set of parties that compute are always the same set of parties and that they continuously progress through the protocol until they um, complete it. Right. But in fact, now we're saying, but who says that this is the case, that these parties can compute the full protocol? Maybe this makes them very vulnerable. Maybe we want protocols that parties can speak only once. They can only make one step, speak, and then they die out. Can we still compute? It seems a little bit uh, impossible because what is the continuity throughout the protocol if parties are being substituted all the time? So, so in this case, every party is sort of uh, stateless, right? You kind of you receive some messages, you make some action, you send maybe something out, and then you can disappear and die. 
Right, exactly. But the question is, first of all, to exactly what does it mean to be stateless? Because of course the protocol needs state. So the question is, how would you get the state that you need for your computation? But once you obtain it, you do a single action, you speak and you disappear. So in that sense, yes, stateless. So now you're starting to lead um, another, I guess, research group at UPenn this time. Uh, do you have plans for this group or are you going to uh, try to win it as well? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, currently there is no group. <laughs> it's me and there are two security people, um, uh, Sebastian Engel and uh, Andrea Saberlin. And um, we have all kinds of plans, but you guys will have to stay tuned to hear how they pan out. Looking forward to that as well. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I am a bit more sophisticated than I was 24, uh, 26, 24 years ago. So I do plan a little bit more now, but uh, I will uh, see how this planning pans out. Right. It's more challenging in the university setting to do these things, to build groups and so on. Mm, so you can already see the difference. Well, just that their money is more scarce, right? Okay, well, um, good luck and I hope uh, your plans work out. I do too. So Tal, this is uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a wonderful experience talking to you.